Section 12 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Growth and Decadence of Chivalry, 10th to 15th Century, by Leon Gautier, Part 2 in the hands of the church which wished to mould him into a christian knight the feudal baron was a very intractable individual no one could be more brutal or more barbarous than he our more ancient ballads those which are founded on the tradition of the ninth and tenth centuries supply us with a portrait which does not appear exaggerated i know nothing in this sense more terrible than raoul de cambray and the hero of this old poem would pass for a type of half-civilized savage. This Raoul was kind of a Sioux, or other redskin, who only wanted tattoo and feathers in his hair to be complete. Even a redskin is a believer, or superstitious to some extent, while Raoul defied the deity himself. The savage respects his mother as a rule, but Raoul laughed at his mother, who cursed him. Behold him as he invaded the Vernandois, contrary to all the rights of legitimate heirs he pillaged burned and slew in all directions he was everywhere pitiless cruel horrible but at origny he appears in all his ferocity you will erect my tent in the church you will make my bed before the altar and put my hawks on the golden crucifix now that church belonged to a convent what did that signify to him he burned the convent he burned the church he burned the nuns among them was the mother of his most faithful servitor bernier his most devoted companion and friend almost his brother but he burned her with the others then when the flames were still burning he sat himself down on a fast day to feast amid the scenes of his sanguinary exploits defying god and man his hands steeped in blood his face lifted to heaven. That was the kind of soldier, the savage of the tenth century, whom the church had to educate. Unfortunately, this Raoul de Cambray is not a unique specimen. He was not the only one who had uttered this ferocious speech. I shall not be happy until I see your heart cut out of your body. Aubrey de Bourgenon was not less cruel and took no trouble to curb his passions had he the right to massacre he knew nothing about that but meanwhile he continued to kill bah he would say it is always an enemy the less on one occasion he slew his four cousins he was as sensual as cruel his thick-skinned savagery did not appear to feel either shame or remorse he was strong and had a weighty hand that was sufficient Ogier was scarcely any better, but notwithstanding all the glory attaching to his name, I know nothing more saddening than the final episode of the rude poem attributed to Rambert of Paris. The son of Ogier, Baudonnet, had been slain by the son of Charlemagne, who called himself Charlot. Ogier did nothing but breathe vengeance and would not agree to assist Christendom against the Saracen invaders unless the unfortunate Charlot was delivered to him. He wanted to kill him. 
he determined to kill him, and he rejoiced over it in anticipation. In vain did Charlot humble himself before this brute and endeavor to pacify him by the sincerity of his repentance. In vain the old emperor himself prayed most earnestly to God. In vain the venerable Namath, the Nestor of our ballads, offered to serve Ogier all the rest of his life, and begged the Dane not to forget the Saviour who was born of the Virgin at Bethlehem. All their devotion and prayers were unavailing. Ogier, pitiless, placed one of his heavy hands on the youthful head, and with the other drew his sword, his terrible courtain. Nothing less than the intervention of an angel from heaven could have put an end to this terrible scene, in which all the savagery of the German forests was displayed. The majority of these early heroes had no other shibboleth than I am going to separate the head from the trunk. It was their war cry. But if you desire something more frightful still, something more primitive, you have only to open the Loberanes at hazard and read a few stanzas of that raging ballad of Daring Do, and you will almost fancy you are perusing one of those pages in which Livingston describes in such indignant terms the manners of some tribe in Central Africa. Read this. Beg struck Izori upon his black helmet through the golden circlet, cutting him to the chine. Then he plunged into his body his sword, Flamberger, with the golden hilt, took the heart out with both hands, and threw it, still warm, at the head of William, saying, This is your cousin's heart. You can salt and roast it. Here, words fail us. It would be too tame to say with Godeca, These heroes act like the forces of nature, in the manner of the hurricane which knows no pity. We must use more indignant terms than these, for we are truly amid cannibals. Once again we say, There was the warrior, there was the savage, whom the church had to elevate and educate. Such is the point of departure of this wonderful progress. Such are the refractory elements out of which chivalry and the knight have been fashioned. The point of departure is Raoul of Cambrai, Burning, or Rigny. The point of arrival is Gerard of Roussillon, falling one day at the feet of an old priest, and expiating his former pride by twenty-two years of penitence. These two episodes embrace many centuries between them. A very interesting study might be made of the gradual transformation from the redskin to the knight. It might be shown how, and at what period of history, each of the virtues of chivalry penetrated victoriously into the undisciplined souls of these brutal warriors who were our ancestors. It might be determined at what moment the church became strong enough to impose upon our knights the great duties of defending it and of loving one another. This victory was attained in a certain number of cases undoubtedly toward the end of the eleventh century, and the knight appears to us perfected, finished, radiant in the most ancient tradition of the Chanson du Roland, which is considered to have been produced between 1066 and 1095. It is scarcely necessary to observe that chivalry was no longer in course of establishment when Pope Urban II threw with a powerful hand the whole of Christian West upon the East, 
where the tomb of Christ was in possession of the infidel. In legendary lore, the embodiment of chivalry is Roland. In history, it is Godfrey de Boulogne. There are no more worthy names than these. The decadence of chivalry. And when one is speaking of human institutions, sooner or later this word must be used. Perhaps set in sooner than historians can believe. We need not attach too much importance to the grumblings of certain poets, who complain of their time with an evidently exaggerated bitterness, and we do not care for our own part to take literally the testimony of the unknown author of La Vie de Saint Alexis, who exclaims, about the middle of the eleventh century, that everything is degenerate and all is lost. Thus, in olden times the world was good justice and love were springs of action in it. People then had faith, which has disappeared from amongst us. The world is entirely changed. The world has lost its healthy color. It is pale. It has grown old. It is growing worse, and will soon cease altogether. The poet exaggerates in a very singular manner the evil which he perceives around him and one might aver that far from bordering upon old age, chivalry was then almost in the very zenith of its glory. The twelfth century was its apogee, and it was not until the thirteenth that it manifested the first symptoms of decay. The Maos Morwant, exclaims the author of Godfrey de Boulogne, and he adds sadly, Tosslebiens et finis. It was more correct in speaking thus than was the author of St. Alexis in his complainings for the decadence of chivalry actually commenced in his time, and it is not unreasonable to inquire into the causes of its decay. The romance of the round table, which in the opinion of prepossessed or thoughtless critics appears so profoundly chivalrous, may be considered one of the works which hastened the downfall of chivalry. We are aware that by this seeming paradox we shall probably scandalize some of our readers who look upon these adventurous cavaliers as veritable knights. What does it matter? The heroes of our chansons du Gast are really the authorized representatives and types of the society of their time, and not these fine adventure-seeking individuals who have been so brilliantly sketched by the pencil of Christian de Troyes. It is true, however, that this charming and delicate spirit did not give in his works an accurate idea of his century and generation. We do not say that he embellished all he touched, but only that he enlivened it. Notwithstanding all that one could say about it, this school introduced the old Gaelic spirit into a poetry which had been till then chiefly Christian or German. Our epic poems are of German origin, and the table round is of Celtic origin. Sensual and light, witty and delicate, descriptive and charming, these pleasing romances are never masculine, and become too often effeminate and effeminating. They sing always, or nearly so, the same theme, by lovely pasturages, clothed with beautiful flowers, the air full of birds, a young knight proceeds in search of the unknown, and through a series of adventures, whose only fault is that they resemble one another somewhat too closely. We find 
insolent defiances magnificent duels enchanted castles tender love scenes mysterious talismans the marvelous mingles with the supernatural magicians with saints fairies with angels the whole is written in a style essentially french and it must be confessed in clear polished and chastened language perfect we must not forget as we said just now that this poetry so greatly attractive began as early as the twelfth century to be the mode universally and let us not forget that it was at the same period that the percival de galois and d'alescans cleomade and the couronnement louis were written the two schools have coexisted for many centuries both camps have enjoyed the favor of the public but in such a struggle it was all too easy to decide to which of them the victory would eventually incline the ladies decided it and no doubt the greater number of them wept over the perusal of eric or enid more than over that of the convent vivienne or raoul de cambrai when the grand century of the middle ages had closed when the blatant thirteenth century commenced the sentimental had already gained the advantage over our old classic chansons and the new school the romantic set of the table round triumphed unfortunately they also triumphed in their manners and they were the knights of the round table who with the valois seated themselves upon the throne of france in this way temerity replaced true courage so good polite manners replaced heroic rudeness so foolish generosity replaced the charitable austerity of the early chivalry it was the love of the unforeseen even in the military art the rage for adventure even in politics we know whither this strategy and these theatrical politics led us that joan of arc and providence were required to drag us out of the consequences the other causes of the decadence of the spirit of chivalry are more difficult to determine there is one of them which has not perhaps been sufficiently brought to light and this is will it be believed the ex-development of certain orders of chivalry this statement requires some explanation we must confess that we are enthusiastic passionate admirers of these grand military orders which were formed at the commencement of the twelfth century there have never been their like in the world and it was only given to christianity to display to us such a spectacle to give to one single soul the double ideal of the soldier and the monk to impose upon him this double charge to fix in one of these two conditions and in one only these two duties to cause to spring from the earth i cannot tell how many thousands of men who voluntarily accepted this burden and who were not crushed by it that is a problem which one might have been pardoned for thinking insoluble we have not sufficiently considered it we have not pictured to ourselves with sufficient vividness the templars and the hospitallers in the midst of one of those great battles in the holy land in which the fate of the world was in the balance painters have not sufficiently portrayed them in the arid plains of asia forming an incomparable squadron in the midst of the battle one might talk forever and yet not say too much about the charge of the cuirassiers at reichshofen 
but how many times did the hospitaller knights and the templars charge in similar fashion those soldier monks in truth invented a new idea of courage unfortunately they were not always fighting and peace troubled some of them they became too rich and their riches lowered them in the eyes of men and before heaven we do not intend to adopt all the calumnies which have been circulated concerning the templars but it is difficult not to admit that many of these accusations had some foundation the hospitallers at any rate have given no ground for such attacks they thank heaven remained undefiled if not poor and were an honor to that chivalry which others had compromised and emasculated but when all is said that which best became chivalry the spice which preserved it the most surely was poverty love of riches had not only attacked the chivalrous orders but in a very short space of time all knights caught the infection sensuality and enjoyment had penetrated into their castles scarcely had they received the knightly baldric before they commenced to break the commandments and to pillage the poor when it became necessary to go to war their sumpter horses were laden with wine and not with weapons with leathern bottles instead of swords with spits instead of lances one might have fancied in truth that they were going out to dinner and not to fight it is true their shields were beautifully gilt but they were kept in a virgin and unused condition chivalrous combats were represented upon their bucklers and their saddles certainly but that was all now who is it who writes thus it is not as one might fancy an author of the fifteenth century it is a writer of the twelfth and the greatest satirist somewhat excessive and unjust in his statements the christian juvenile whom we have just quoted was none other than peter of blois a hundred other witnesses might be cited in support of these indignant words but if there is some exaggeration in them we are compelled to confess that there is a considerable substratum of truth also these abuses which wealth engendered which more than one poet has stigmatized attracted in the fourteenth century the attention of an important individual a person whose name occupies a worthy place in literature and history philip of mezieres chancellor of cyprus under peter of lusignan was a true knight who one day conceived the idea of reforming chivalry now the way he found most feasible in accomplishing his object in arriving at such a difficult and complex reform was to found a new order of chivalry himself to which he gave the high-sounding title of the chivalry of the passion of christ the decadence of chivalry is attested alas by the very character of the reformers by which this well-meaning utopian attempted to oppose it the good knight complains of the great advances of sensuality and permits and advises the marriage of all knights he complains of the accursed riches which the hospitallers themselves were putting to a bad use and forbade them in his institutions but nevertheless the luxurious habits of his time had an influence upon his mind and he permitted his knights to wear the most extravagant costumes and the dignitaries of his order to adopt the most high-sounding titles there was something mystical in all this conception and something theatrical in all this agency it is hardly necessary to add that the chivalry of the passion was only a beautiful dream 
originating in a generous mind. Notwithstanding the adherence of some brilliant personages, the order never attained to more than a theoretical organization, and had only a fictitious foundation. The idea of the deliverance of the Holy Sepulchre from the infidel was hardly the object of the fifteenth-century chivalry, for the struggle between France and England then was engaging the most courageous warriors and the most practiced swords. Decay hurried on apace. But this was not the only cause of such a fatal falling away. The portals of chivalry had been opened to too many unworthy candidates. It had been made vulgar. In consequence of having become so cheap, the grand title of knight was degraded. Eustace de Champ, in his fine, straightforward way, states the scandal boldly, and lashes it with his tongue. He says, Picture to yourself the fact that the degree of knighthood is about to be conferred now upon babies of eight and ten years old. Well might this excellent man exclaim in another place, Disorders always go on gathering strength, and even incomparable knights like Dugosselin and Bayard cannot arrest the fatal course of the institution toward ruin. Chivalry was destined to disappear. It is very important that one should make oneself acquainted with the true character of such a downfall. France and England, in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries, still boasted many high-bred knights. They exchanged the most superb defiances, the most audacious challenges, and proceeded from one country to another to run each other through the body proudly. The Beaumanois, who drank their blood, abounded. It was a question who would engage himself in the most incredible pranks, who would commit the most daring folly. They tell us afterward of the beautiful passages of arms, the grand feats performed, and the inimitable Frossard is the most charming of all these narrators, who make their readers as chivalrous as themselves. But we must tell everything. Among these knights, in beautiful armor, there was a band of adventurers who never observed and who could never understand certain commandments of the ancient chivalry. The laxity of luxury had everywhere replaced the rigorous enactments of the old manliness, and even warriors themselves loved their ease too much. The religious sentiment was not the dominant one in their minds, in which the idea of a crusade now never entered. They had not sufficient respect for the weakness of the church, nor for other failings. They no longer felt themselves the champions of the good and the enemies of evil. Their sense of justice had become warped, as had love for their great native land. Again what they termed the license of camps had grown very much worse and we know in what condition Joan of Arc found the army of the king. Blasphemy and ribaldry in every quarter. The noble girl swept away these pests, but the effect of her actions was not long-lived. She was the person to re-establish chivalry, which in her found the purity of its now effaced type. But she died too soon, and had not sufficient imitators. There were, after her time, many chivalrous souls, and thank heaven there are still some among us, but the old institution is no longer with us. The events which we had the misfortune to witness did not give us any ground to hope that chivalry, extinct and dead, will rise again tomorrow to light and life. In St. Louis' time, caricature and parody 
they were low-class forces but forces nevertheless had already commenced the work of destruction we are in possession of an abominable little poem of the thirteenth century which is nothing but a scatological pamphlet directed against chivalry this ignoble odigier the author of which is the basest of men is not the only attack which one may disinter from amid the literature of that period if one wishes to draw up a really complete list it would be necessary to include the jobliot the renan and the rose which constitute the most anti-chivalrous i had nearly written the most voltairian works that i am acquainted with the thread is easy enough to follow from the twelfth century down to the author of don quixote which i do not confound with its infamous predecessors to cervantes whose work has been fatal but whose mind was elevated however that may be parody and the parodists were themselves a cause of decay they weakened morals gallic like they popularized little bourgeois sentiments narrow-minded satirical sentiments they inoculated manly souls with contempt for such great things as one performs disinterestedly this disdain is a sure element of decay and we may regard it as an announcement of death against the knights who here and there showed themselves unworthy and degenerate was put in practice the terrible apparatus of degradation modern historians of chivalry have not failed to describe in detail all the rites of this solemn punishment and we have presented to us a scene which is well calculated to excite the imagination of the most matter-of-fact and to make the most timid heart swell the knight judicially condemned to submit to this shame was first conducted to a scaffold where they broke or trod underfoot all his weapons he saw his shield with device effaced turned upside down and trailed in the mud priests after reciting prayers for the vigil of the dead pronounced over his head the psalm which contains terrible maledictions against traitors the herald of arms who carried out this sentence took from the hands of the prusuvant of arms a basin full of dirty water and threw it all over the head of the recreant knight in order to wash away the sacred character which had been conferred upon him by the accolade the guilty one degraded in this way was subsequently thrown upon a hurdle or upon a stretcher covered with a mortuary cloak and finally carried to the church where they repeated the same prayers and the same ceremonies as for the dead this was really terrible even if somewhat theatrical and it is easy to see that this complicated ritual contained only a very few ancient elements in the twelfth century the ceremonial of degradation was infinitely more simple the spurs were hacked off close to the heels of the guilty knight nothing could be more summary or more significant such a person was publicly denounced as unworthy to ride on horseback and consequently quite unworthy to be a knight the more ancient and chivalrous the less theatrical it is it is so in many other institutions in the histories of all nations that such a penalty may have prevented a certain number of treasons and forfeitures we willingly admit but one cannot expect it to preserve all the whole body of chivalry from that decadence from which no institution of human establishment can escape notwithstanding inevitable weaknesses and accidents the decalogue of chivalry has none the less been regnant in some millions of souls which it has made pure and great 
these ten commandments have been the rules and the reins of youthful generations who without them would have been wild and undisciplined this legislation in fact which to tell the truth is only one of the chapters of the great catholic code has raised the moral level of humanity besides chivalry is not yet quite dead no doubt the ritual of chivalry the solemn reception the order itself and the ancient oaths no longer exist no doubt among these grand commandments there are many which are known only to the erudite and which the world is unacquainted with the catholic faith is no longer the essence of modern chivalry the church is no longer seated on the throne around which the old knights stand with their drawn swords islam is no longer the hereditary enemy we have another which threatens us nearer home widows and orphans have need rather of the tongues of advocates than of the iron weapons of the knights there are no more duties toward liege lords to be fulfilled and we do not even want any kind of superior lord at all largesse is now confounded with charity and the becoming hatred of evil-doing is no longer our chief our best passion but whatever we may do there still remains to us in the marrow a certain leaven of chivalry which preserves us from death there are still in the world an immense number of fine souls strong and upright souls who hate all that is small and mean who know and who practice all the delicate promptings of honor and who prefer death to an unworthy action or to a lie that is what we owe to chivalry that is what it has bequeathed to us on the day when these last vestiges of such grand past are effaced from our souls we shall cease to exist end of section twelve